It's history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. The figures. The drama. The deep question. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I've been waiting for the entire length of time that this program's been running to talk about something relating to the next subject I'd like to get into. One of my favorite periods in history, one of the subjects that, in my mind, carries all the drama and the pageantry and the nail-biting, everything-is-at-stake sort of tension that, well, I love about history, that, as I always say, has ruined fiction for me, right? Because history is so much more real, and you know that the people in the stories that you're hearing from the past, when they were facing life-or-death situations, it wasn't a movie script you realize that the drama is real because this person in the history is facing some monumental situation. And, again, if that's the kind of thing that turns you on about history, I don't know how you can't be drawn to the era of history where the Greeks and the Persians battled it out in antiquity, the famous... Greek and Persian wars, the wars that saw, well, one of the ultimate dramas of all time, right? The Battle of Thermopylae, the Spartan king, Leonidas, and his 300 Spartans dying in the pass to protect probably the rest of the army, maybe the rest of Greece, maybe the rest of Western civilization. Very likely we're not here today talking like we are right now if that didn't happen. Imagine the weight of history on the shoulders of those men who knew they were going to die. Likely they didn't think that far ahead. Bad enough and pressure-filled a situation enough knowing that your homes and families and country and freedom of Greece, as you understood freedom to be, at stake. That's enough pressure right there, isn't it? But to understand that maybe the entire West and then to get some realization of what that even means to a person who was living around 470 B.C. Can't imagine the weight of time that rests on... You know, it's funny. The people that died at Thermopylae were, by the standards of the Greeks of their day, right-wing conservatives, not really the free-thinking Greeks, and certainly not the democratic Greeks that we hail as the fathers of the West today. And yet at the same time, those 
autocratic, authoritarian, aristocratic Spartans who died with their king at Thermopylae made it possible to have the Socrateses and the Plato's and the Aristophaneses and the Sophocleses and the Euripides and everything that became the West was, maybe, saved at the battle, the doomed battle from the very beginning at that pass where 300 Spartans and some allies held off the Persian king and his massive army for three days, knowing that they would die doing it. How much drama is contained in that? So, I've always been fascinated by the Greek and Persian Wars, and not just by the Greeks. We in the West have always had a bias towards the Greeks. For us, even here in America, the Greeks in that war are the home team, right? They're the people that we want to win for all sorts of reasons, including our being here today. Besides that, it's a biased account of that conflict that's been handed down to us through history. We really, for all intents and purposes, only have the Greek side of that conflict. The uh, major historian everyone uses is a man named Herodotus. He's called the father of history. A Greek who uh, got around, it should be noted, traveled quite a bit, and absorbed stories from the various places that he visited. He has, throughout history, gone through periods where he's taken very seriously and others where almost everything he says is written off as fiction or exaggeration or stories told to him by people who were making up stories. Nowadays, we're leaning more towards the idea that Herodotus was more right than wrong. A lot of reason for that is we've discovered things, you know, in archaeology and whatnot in the past 20, 25 years that seem to back up some of the things he said that seemed pretty fanciful to historians 30, 40, 50 years ago. In any case... Herodotus, it should be noted from the very beginning, gives us a very pro-Greek account, as you might expect. He's pretty fair, I think you'd say, by you know the standards of the day, but he's still pretty pro-Greek. And the numbers that are consistently given for the Persians are, there's no other way to say it, massively inflated. Some historians um, believe the numbers that Herodotus gave for the size of the Persian armies, but we'll get into why they are massively overinflated. And the reason we would even talk about something like that so early in the conversation is that the numbers of troops that the Persians brought into the Greek and Persian War is a key point that ripples up and down the conflict as we understand it today. It's one of the key factors in the whole debate. I mean, for real history people who are into this era, the question of the numbers of Persian soldiers that were fielded in the Greek and Persian Wars is a little like the JFK assassination investigation. You can argue this, and it has been argued forever, about how many troops could the Persians have had? Would the water supply have allowed this many? What did Herodotus say? What was likely? Where were the recruiting grounds? How many, you know, how much food could get, get to the troops in the field? I mean, you, you can go on and on, and we will go on and on at a later point in this conversation. But just suffice it to be said that the very first question that will impede everything we talk about here are the numbers of the Persians. And those numbers start with Herodotus, the main historian we have for this event, because he's the one that gave the numbers that have confused us ever since. So what was going on, to give you a little background, I'm sure you know this story already, 
was um, there was this giant empire in Asia, comprised everywhere from Turkey all the way over to the western parts of India, up into what is now Afghanistan and all the way down to the tip of Saudi Arabia, even Egypt and some of the areas to the south and west of Egypt were under the control of these Persian people. Now, the Persians are the ancestors of the current Iranian people. They were a pre-Muslim society, obviously, and they were an Indo-European people, which is important to note. These Persians were the inheritors of a culture that came to them from all of these Semitic cultures before them. They were the last in a long line of, I would say relatively unbroken would be the way to put it, civilizations going all the way back to ancient Sumeria. You had the Sumerians and the Akkadians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and finally the Persians after uh, the Medes, which didn't last very long either. And the, and the Medes and the Persians are kind of very related cousin people. The Greeks even called the Persians the Medes. And the Medes and the Persians were the first of the Indo-European empires in that area, you know, that we know of. The Sumerians are where recorded history in Mesopotamia starts for us, but we all know how history works. There were 10,000 empires before Sumeria that have never made it into history. Smaller, littler ones, but we all know there's a history before our history, right? But to our knowledge, Sumeria is where it all starts, at least literature-wise, and our ability to read records. And that's an unbroken civilization that is Semitic, as the Arabs are, as the Jews are, in um, ethnicity and culture, all the way up to just before the Medes, when the Babylonians were running things, and it was under the Babylonians that the Jews were first exiled from parts of their homeland and their temple destroyed under the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians came the Medes and then the Persians, this was your first big Indo-European group of people. They were Aryans. And you may remember the term Aryan because Hitler used it all the time. But in Hitler's mind, he saw blonde-haired, blue-eyed people where the real Aryans, it's believed, and a lot of this is done through linguistic tracing, um, were a people that emerged out of the Central Asian area in a number of different directions at a time, swept into Europe, one arm of the Indo-European invasions, another one swept into Asia Minor where Turkey is now, another one swept into Afghanistan and Iran, and another one farther, the Eastern Tentacle, I guess you could call it, swept into Northern India and even touched upon pieces of what's now China. The Aryans are still a dominant group in India today, and they trace their lineage all the way back to these pre-historical invasions. The ancient Persians were very like the Indian Aryans now, and they were conscious, by the way, of their Aryan heritage, talked about it, put it in their records. When they would carve into a mountainside their lineage, they would make sure that they said that they were Aryan. This distinguished them from the surrounding culture, which was mostly Semitic in nature. So you had this group of people that had come out of the mountains not that long ago, before the Greek and Persian Wars, a couple hundred years. They still considered themselves a mountain people, even when they became a ruling class down in the flatlands around Babylonia. And they had this mountain heritage, and they used to keep gardens down in the flatlands. 
with all of the native trees from the mountains where they considered to be their homeland growing in these gardens. And even though Herodotus and the Greeks have portrayed the Persians as this almost Nazistic slave society, it was actually probably the most tolerant major empire the Middle East had ever seen. The Persians were notoriously light-handed with their subjects. Whereas a couple of hundred years before the Assyrians were, were the Nazis of the ancient world, were famous for impaling people on stakes out in front of cities, mass killings, genocide on a almost modern scale. That was what the Middle East was used to. And the Persians usually just came in, replaced whatever local leader whose country they had just taken with a Persian representative and left everything else in place. Practiced their own religions, these people the Persians conquered. That was fine with the Persians. As long as you pay your taxes, they usually didn't care. Matter of fact, when they asked you to come and serve in the Persian army whenever the big wars required your people to help, they'd let you fight in your own uniforms, your own way. How, you know, if you're archers, you can shoot bows. You like to fight in an evade and skirmish style? That's fine with us. We'll use you that way. The Persians were notoriously lenient as rulers in the Middle East. But to the Greeks, it was still a... An absolute ruler dominated society. And when we say Greeks, let's remember something else. We're not getting the Spartan point of view of this story either. We're getting the Athenian point of view. We're getting the point of view from the people who were Democrats and who admired the people running things, or at least a segment of them. And so there was a natural, almost spitting hatred toward a society ruled by one man's will, which is what the king of kings, what they called the leader of Iran, the king of kings. His will drove an empire, the largest one the world had ever seen. If he wanted to go left, they went left. If he decided to take the empire right, they went right. And eventually, that became a very interesting system of government where if the empire disagreed with where the king of kings wanted to take them, the check and balance that they invented was killing the leader. That's farther along. That happened in the Assyrian Empire too. But when the Persians were founded under a great leader, one of the great men of history, Kurash, Cyrus is how we know him now. Kurash is a closer pronunciation. I don't pretend to be perfect, but a closer pronunciation of the way the Persians would have said it. One of these great figures in history, one of these people who, had he not lived, it's very likely that there would have been no Persian Empire. Hence, there would have been no conflict with Greece. The Greeks probably would have fought whoever was running Asia eventually, but it wouldn't have been the Persians if not for this Kurash fellow. And when he died, his son took over, as was normal in most aristocratic societies. His son is one of these historical figures that it's hard to get your hands around, considering how little we have to tell us about him. We have conflicting accounts. He may have been crazy. And eventually, through a series of events, he is deposed or dies or is assassinated. And a member of the same family ends up on the throne. 
there was some kind of coup, some kind of change in government. It's very controversial, and you can see it in the writings of later Persian kings when they try to talk their way around how they ended up with the kingship when they didn't come from a direct father-son lineage with this Kurash guy, Cyrus the Great, as he's known. Now, when... Cyrus' son is deposed, and this new leader takes over eventually after a series of pretenders known to history as Darius. He's mentioned in the ancient Hebrew texts as well. Now, the empire that the Kurash fella had founded was still on the ascent. They were still conquering lands in various directions, having some problems in certain areas. Uh, Egypt always rebellious. Babylonia, always rebellious, but you put down those kind of things and then they were looking for areas where they could expand. They started to have some problems on their western frontier in an area that the Greeks called Ionia. And this is where Turkey is now, the coastline. You know, farther west from there are the Greek islands of Lesbos and Chios and places like that. The coastline there was populated by cities that had been founded by Greek colonists a long time before, but they had fallen under the sway of the Persian kings when Persia defeated Lydia, one of the great battles of history we know very little about. Well, these cities chafed under the domination of the Persian king these Ionian cities, these culturally Greek cities, and they were always appealing for help from the Greeks on the mainland, their cousins in Greece proper. And finally, during one of the revolts in Ionia, the Greeks on the mainland offered a little bit of help. Not a lot of help, some help, though. In other words, sort of playing the role that the United States played in the Second World War before they actually got involved in the war when they were doing things like lend-lease to Europe and figuring out ways to give the British destroyers from our country without charging them money. That's kind of what Greece was doing, sending a little aid to try to help the Ionians help themselves. Kind of that give us the tools and we'll finish the job kind of approach from the Ionians. I think the Ionians really were hoping the Spartan army would show up on their doorstep and drive the Persians away. But it didn't work out that way. Didn't want to get that involved in Persian affairs as the... Spartans and Athenians looked at it. But what they didn't realize was the king of Persia was going to take something like giving a little lend-lease to the Ionians as seriously as if the Spartans had actually shown up and decided to fight right there with the Ionians shoulder to shoulder. Persian kings didn't take a lot of flack in those days, and that got Greece proper on the naughty list. Persia was going to go and teach the Greeks a lesson at some point, and the Persian king made a note about it. So a few years later, the king of Persia, Darius, this is in the late 490s, you know, 492, right around there, the Persians decide to test Greece out. I guess you would call this probably by modern standards a reconnaissance in force. We don't have enough information to know, but it's one of the most famous battles in the history of the world that resulted from this reconnaissance in force, where Darius with an Athenian, the descendant of an Athenian ruler, what the Persians, it looks like, were hoping to do was go in 
take a test of strength against whatever they found when they landed near Athens. And if they ended up winning, putting this guy who was related to a family that had ruled Athens a long time ago on the throne. And it's also, by historians, considered likely that this relative of a Greek tyrant was giving the Persians their information on the lay of the land and the local customs and the kind of opposition he was likely to meet. Because one of the things that's fascinating about this conflict is this was really sort of two different worlds colliding. I've always loved that aspect of history. I've never been into things like civil wars because I never found it so interesting when like-minded groups came together. But the almost... Star Trek quality sometimes of these alien cultures that didn't really know each other very well butting head-on fascinates me. There are stories about the Greek victors at the Battle of Marathon taking a good hard look at the corpses of the Persians they just killed because they really hadn't seen them before. Hadn't dealt with that side of the world before. These were alien cultures colliding. A lot of people like that aspect about Alexander the Great when he goes in and topples this empire about a century from the Battle of Marathon. But see, that's not as interesting to me because by that time the Persians and Greeks had had a lot of contact. When this reconnaissance and force was about to land little ways away from Athens, these two worlds didn't know each other very well. And this Persian army sighs again, which seems very inflated, very high compared to what you would think they would be able to send, equip, supply, and all that, lands in this inlet, this area called Marathon. And the Athenians who send for aid but end up at the battle site with just themselves, history says about 10,000 of them, and about 1,000 allies from a smaller city-state, and they sit there and try to figure out what to do as this alien army is unloading their ships at Marathon. And what they decide to do is to just charge them. In one of those momentous moments of history, they decide that they're just going to line up at the edge of the beach in full bronze armor carrying heavy shields and long spears, wearing helmets, crested, heavy, and just charge this alien army as it disembarks from the ships at Marathon. And why this turned out to be a good thing to do was they had caught the Persian army without allowing the Persians to deploy. The Persians, who were masters of creating the perfect battlefield for their forces to operate, to the best of their ability. Against Alexander, they were known sometimes for sending out thousands of men in advance to clear small stones off the battlefield if it was going to impede their chariots. So the Persian kings and generals liked to line their troops up meticulously, take time to scout out the battlefield and do it right. That's probably why they chose to land a ways away from where they thought the battle would occur, which was near Athens. Instead, they're confronted by a much smaller force of just heavy infantry, no missile troops, no light troops that we know of. And while the cavalry is still unavailable, 
while the line infantry has yet to form up, while basically there's just a screening force out on the battlefield, the Greeks attack. And it still was a near-run thing. They had such a weakened center. They had chosen to put a lot of troops on each flank. And it turned out to be the right thing to do because the center basically held, and the flanks came in and crushed the Persians on the beach. And it became a mad dash to get back to the boats so that they could get off that beach where the hoplites, as the Greek heavy infantry were known, uh, mopped up the disaster that was the Persian landing. And the casualty figures that come down to us have about 150 dead Greeks to about almost 5,000 Persians. And that may look like quite a disparity, and I question the overall troop numbers, but that sounds about right, because if you looked at ancient warfare, most of the casualties happened after one side started to disintegrate and run away. And the casualties of the victor were often very light, because they never turned and ran away. And so 148, 149, 150, whatever the Greek number was, 158 was it, Ben, maybe? Um, doesn't match that badly with the 4,700 Persians that are supposed to have died. Now, what happened is that Persian force went back to Darius licking its wounds, and the king just got angry. Now, Darius didn't live to take revenge on the Greeks for his defeat at the Battle of Marathon, but his son, Xerxes, kept in mind what had happened, and for an empire like the Persians, which was not used to taking defeat lightly, I've read some accounts that say that they hadn't been defeated. Well, the Persians met with setbacks occasionally, but it was their tradition to simply and doggedly push forward against places that had been problematic. Egypt threw off Persian yoke and was recaptured. Babylon rebelled many times. The Persians dealt with it. So Xerxes was simply doing what seemed to be the standard operating procedure for the Persian kings when he decided that the reconnaissance in force that ended tragically for them at the Battle of Marathon simply proved that the Greeks were not going to be pushovers and that Persia was going to have to launch a major expedition to deal with their problem on their western flank, probably still seen as a relatively small situation by their standards. And this time, the Persians did it the Persian way, which involved meticulous planning and supply and recruiting and mustering brought forces all the way from the eastern side of the empire, had them meet the forces from the western side of the empire, and then cross over from Asia into Europe together with an army whose size we cannot figure out. Massive seems to be the general consensus by all the sources we have, which of course mostly, almost exclusively Greek. But what was massive? Because this is where the Persian Wars become so cloudy from a military point of view to us, if we cannot figure out a rough idea of the size of the Persian forces, it's difficult to figure out what was going on in all these battles. Now, we have pretty good numbers from our Greek sources. If you want to believe them, they're pretty meticulous. They'll go down to the amounts of troops from each district in the Persian Empire and what they looked like and how they were armed. But if you believe the Greek numbers, if you take Herodotus's numbers, for example, he is saying that there were more than five million Persians invading Greece. Five million. 
Now, some modern historians have actually chosen to buy that, take it at face value. To me, those numbers are beyond unbelievable. And let's understand something. There is a natural human tendency in war to inflate the size of the enemy forces and inflate the number of people friendlies killed. If you look at just the Second World War, we were doing that all the time. In Vietnam, the United States was obsessed with something we called in this country body counts. And of course, turns out the body counts were overly inflated because there was an incentive to do that. Times haven't changed that much in terms of warfare and fighting and the natural tendency to inflate the size of the enemy forces to make the victory look bigger. But as historian, German historian Hans Delbruck pointed out more than a hundred years ago, if the Persians really had five million people, the front line of the Persian military column would be arriving in Greece while the end of the column was still leaving its original destination near Babylon. That's hard to mentally envision, but Delbruck just goes down the line and shows you the German army's regulations for how far 30,000 troops are going to be strung out while they're marching, and in Germany they marched in very close order with precision, and 30,000 troops took up 14 miles. Delbruck just does the simple math showing that the Persian military column would be some 2,000 miles long. Not just that, but how do you feed 5 million people? Now, Herodotus makes the claim, and so have other historians, that a lot of that 5 million number is not actual fighting forces. The attendants, the camp followers, the women, the people who kept the army fed and supplied, the hangers-on, that, that comprised a large amount of those forces. Remember, the king actually traveled with this army. Xerxes came to Greece with his army in some litter, no doubt, carried by other people. And when the king went on the campaign, you had this giant staff of people that formed, really, the Persian government going on campaign as well. So, some modern historians look at that five million number and say that it's not that hard to believe when you realize the overall size, scope, and nature of this project, this Persian invasion of Greece. But five million is an almost impossible number to believe. If you realize that, say, the Woodstock Music Festival in the 60s here in this country, a renowned get-together of a large group of people for three days, met the 500,000 mark at one point in the three-day festival, 500,000 people in one area for three days, or the better part of it. It was a nightmare in terms of the ability to feed and supply a bunch of people who mostly brought their own stuff and enough of it to last them for the duration of the event. Go look at pictures of Woodstock. There are some good aerial photos to give you an idea of the size and scope of it. Now imagine an army ten times that size. A group of human beings ten times that size without the vaccinations, without the food carried on their back, without the initial good health going into it, with everything that comes with it. How do you feed and water them? What do you do about disease? It's just incomprehensible. 
Now, the reason, again, that this matters is because the Greek victory over Herodotus's five million is one of the amazing little guy beats up big guy stories of history. And our forefathers didn't question those numbers as much as we do. The Romans didn't question those numbers as much as we do. The people that came after the generation that fought the Greek and Persian wars didn't question the numbers as much as we do now. And to them, to think that some 30 or 40 or 50,000 Greeks beat this army of 5 million, well, there's a mythology and an ethos and a almost sacramental reverence, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to that event. The people that fought well at these battles against the Mede, as the Greeks called them, lived with an almost Homeric kind of fame forever. The cities that fought with the Spartans at Thermopylae and didn't run achieved fame forever, as did the cities that fought with the Athenians at Marathon, always remembered by later generations. The Spartans themselves, a group of Greeks who have not been a separate people for 2,000 years, yet still known and remembered and admired today? Who can forget the lines that the Spartans are supposed to have said when at Thermopylae they faced what they knew would be their doom? And the legend has it that the oracle recorded to the Spartans that the Spartans would have to sacrifice one of their traditional two kings in order to come out of these upcoming wars and survive. That's what the death of the Spartan king Leonidas at Thermopylae is seen to have been, and may have been seen to have been by him. He may have known going into this that he wasn't supposed to come out, so when it became apparent that there was a chance to maybe save the rest of the Greeks by making a historic sacrifice and holding up the Persian army at this narrow pass, he may have been expecting to do that all along. But the kind of comments that have come down to us throughout history, whether they were really the words of these people or not, are Clint Eastwood-like would be the only way to describe them. When the Persians asked the Spartans to surrender their weapons and give up, the Spartan king is said to have replied, come and get them. When one of the Greeks in the entourage tries to tell the Spartan king that the Persian arrows are so numerous that when they fire them in volley that they blot out the sun. He's said to have replied, all the better, then we'll fight in the shade. And before the last day of the battle, when the Greeks realized it was coming down to the end, the king is supposed to have said to his men, have a hearty breakfast because tonight we'll dine in Hades, which was the afterlife land. So these were the men who made the ultimate mark on history, and I always wonder, as I said, did they know what they were fighting for? Did they realize 
what this sacrifice that they were going to make, you know, if they were there three days, today, tomorrow, or the next day, what that meant for future generations. Could they have even understood the burden of history that was on their shoulders and what they were protecting? There's a uh, monument that was dedicated to the 300 Spartans and the Spartan king. It said in English, Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. And if you understood Sparta and the ethos of that strange, unique place, you'd understand why being obedient to the laws was important enough to be their epitaph. The Spartans, by the way, almost an experiment in human behavior. It would be interesting to have been able to study it from a psychological standpoint. When you craft a society where you're trying to create this cream of the crop human being, a Captain America kind of, if you ever read the comic books, a super soldier. That's what these Spartiates, the cream of the crop of the Spartans were, raised all their lives to be warriors and nothing else. A whole society like a pyramid devoted to maintaining those cream of the crop warriors at the top of the pyramid. And a group of people that if you were to ask me who I would want to see in a photograph from the time before there were photographs, I might answer one of these Spartans just to see what they looked like. Just to see the expression on their face, the things you read about them make them sound like a different breed. A breed apart well, the Greeks thought they were. From all the other Greeks, I'd like to see the expression on their face. I'd like to see their build. I'd like to see how they dressed. They're an interesting human experiment. And the Persians had never seen anything like them. And the chroniclers make a very big point of how shocked the Persians were to encounter men like the Spartans at Thermopylae. The king of Persia dismayed by those men. His advisor, whose job it was to explain to him some things about the Greeks, so that he wasn't totally in the dark, made him try to understand ahead of time what he was going to be facing, and he sort of shooed the advisor away. Well, he wasn't shooing him away at Thermopylae, where the advisor was basically saying, I told you that these people were different. With their long hair, with their gymnastics before going into battle. Gymnastics are calisthenics, folks, when the Greeks say that. Men doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups. Balancing. Doing dips. All the kinds of exercises you could do with calisthenics. That's how these men kept in shape. And they probably weren't very big men. This is something we don't always know. And there were always bigger people, just like there were always older people in history. But when we talk about people being smaller, we're talking about the medium going down. Leonidas probably bigger than most of his men, but was probably five, six or 5'7". Most of his men probably 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, and probably rather well-built and decent sized by the standards of the Greeks of the day. These were the men that died at Thermopylae without knowing it, but so that the West might live. Now, that doesn't mean that had there been no Thermopylae or had those Greeks been overwhelmed in an hour instead of three days that the West as we know it would have come to an end. It just means it had a better chance, though of coming to an end. The Persians folks might have taken Greece and the world not 
have changed that drastically. That needs to be pointed out. Even while we're admiring what a huge deal it was that they were not allowed to, that the West stopped the Persian advance at Greece. Let's remember that for all we know, the Persians could have taken Greece and a year later, the Greek people rise up and throw them out and everything stays relatively similar to the way it did in history. But when we all laugh at an episode of The Simpsons, maybe, where the father Homer goes back in time and steps on a daffodil and the whole world has changed because any little thing can have such an impact on the future. A big thing like Thermopylae or the fall of Greece at that crucial time, Occam's razor in simple common sense tells you that would likely have been a turning point in world history. We would have gone down a different branch than the one we went down. Think about Western society without the Greek, the classical Greek renaissance that happened after the Persian Wars, and you start to wonder about the whole idea of democracy and representative government and even the art and the culture and the ethos that we have been handed down from these people. Now, what Thermopylae did was make possible the rest of the war. And the rest of the war was now going to be a big war from the Greek side of things, too. And the way that the Greeks were most successful, maybe you could say, in the Greek and Persian Wars was on the waves, on the sea. The Greeks were fantastic seamen. And the Persians, who had crafted a giant fleet, mostly for the purpose of supplying and provisioning his land army, were vulnerable at sea. You cripple the Persian fleet and the supplies to the land army dry up. And if the land army was anywhere near the size that the ancient chroniclers say, uh, this was a big worry. And it was certainly large enough to have a huge supply problem if the ships weren't there to bring in the goods. Right after the Battle of Thermopylae, there was a um, naval battle called the Battle of Artemisium. And this was a victory for the Greek fleet over a numerically larger Persian force, and it caused all sorts of problems in terms of supply. And it foreshadowed a later naval battle. The Greeks would really, it could be said and argued and has been, that they defeated the Persians on the ocean, and that led to the land defeats. But in any case, after Thermopylae, the Greeks were overrun up until a certain point in their country by the Persian Colossus. Athens had to be evacuated, and the population moved off to an island by the navy. The um, Peloponnesians, these people are the people who live on the Peloponnesian side of Greece. Sparta was located there as well. There's a narrow little isthmus that connects it to the rest of Greece, and the Peloponnesians got this bright idea that we could just build a wall there on this little teeny connecting point and just defend that area from the Persians. And then the Athenians could use their fleet to keep the Persian fleet away. But of course, the Athenian part of the country was on that part that wouldn't be defended if that little isthmus defensive line strategy was adopted. So a wily Athenian named Themistocles managed to maneuver the Greeks into a naval battle against the Persians at a place called Salamis. This is one of the most important battles in the history of the world, the Battle of Salamis. And it's a naval battle. 
and in it, a smaller but more skilled number of Greeks managed to get a Persian-run fleet, is a better way to say it, because the Persian themselves were not a naval people. But they controlled a number of people who were naval people, people like the Phoenicians, for example. And the navy that was run by these dependents of the Persians managed to get itself into an area that was too small for the numbers of ships it had to maneuver effectively, and the Greeks tore them apart. Tens of thousands of men died at this Battle of Sinai. And when it ended, it totally changed the Persian outlook of this little border invasion on their western flank. This went from being a meticulously planned endeavor to overwhelm these rebellious Greeks on the fringe of the empire and not just teach them a lesson, but send a message to everyone else in the empire too. See what happens to people who defy the king of kings of Persia. You can't tweak my nose and get away with it. Well, after the Battle of Salamis, all of a sudden the Persian king realized this was not a battle anymore that was a game. At the Battle of Salamis, the Persian king was supposed to have set up a throne for himself on a high point of land near the battle so that he could watch it happen. The same thing was recorded about him at Thermopylae, that there was a place set up, a throne, where he could watch the outcome of the battle. He was going to enjoy chastising the Greeks for having his nose tweaked. After Salamis, it all changed. The whole mood was different, and the Persian king left. He took a bunch of his army with him, we don't know how much, took his royal harem, took a lot of the hangers on, left a general in Greece with a still large force of Persians, and went back to Asia Minor. Some of the Greeks made it sound like if it wasn't going to be this fun game anymore, the Persian king didn't want to have anything to do with it. Probably I would say, my own opinion, that considering how much the Persians had to deal with rebellion in their homeland, any little reverse against the Greeks might be enough to spark another Babylonian rebellion or an Egyptian rebellion or the eastern areas around Bactria that were always giving them problems. Uh, if you're the Persian king, you want to be on the Asian mainland if something happens and you want to have some troops with you. That's what Xerxes did. He left a capable general, though, in charge. And they sat in northern Greece to winter things out and wait. Now, it was the next spring, and that's the year 479, that everything comes to a head. The big battle that every war seems to have to have to be decided took place. It's known in history as the Battle of Plataea. And it didn't have to happen. According to the sources, the Persian general offered the Athenians a peace of sorts. They would be good subjects of the empire, but the Persians would rebuild their destroyed city, which they destroyed when they occupied. They could all come back and be resettled. There'd be some, you know, reparations and rebuilding money. The Persians would have their version of a martial plan. They really were the most lenient of the East, Eastern, you know, despotic states. Uh, Athens turned them down. Athens perhaps knew that the empire was not doing as well in the war as they had thought they would do. Maybe not, though. It was still... It was still at a point where the Persians had not had their metal tested face-to-face -face in a real field battle. Marathon was sort of a surprise attack by the 
Athenian hoplites before the Persians were ready. Thermopylae, even though there had been a battle before the final battle. The 300 stayed behind to cover the retreat of a larger force, which had fought the Persians and done relatively well. There had still not been the definitive field battle. The definitive test of strength between the two sides in an equal fair fight. That was about to happen. What had happened is, we told you, the Persians had wintered in northern Greece. In the spring, after Athens had decided against accepting the Persian terms, the Spartans and their allies decided to come and fight the big field battle. They joined the Athenians in central Greece and ended up meeting the Persians at a place called Plataea. Now, this battle is one of the most interesting to study if you're into the ancient period because the sources are pretty good for an ancient battle and you can end up discerning a lot if you really read the sources carefully. And in the last 25 years, the whole view of the way the Greeks and Persians fought has changed from historians' standpoint. If you go back 100 years and read Hans Delbruck, the German philosopher, he misunderstood the way the Persians fought completely. At Plataea, they were able to deploy their forces in the way, the fashion that they liked to. They had time to array their forces. The armies are supposed to have stared at each other for about 10 days. Now, once again, I want to draw your attention to the supposed numbers of these forces. By the way, the uh, Greeks supposedly had about 35,000 heavy infantry, the hoplites, and many, many, many more times that number of light troops, like in the region of 71,000 light troops. And the uh, Persians, supposedly, with 300,000 men left over from this giant grand army that had left Persia a couple years before. Well, I again ask you to imagine those numbers of people, many times the number of people at Woodstock, if you take both armies, the 300,000 of the Persians, the 100,000 of the Greeks. Actually, it is about Woodstock. But imagine it sitting, staring at each other in the hot Greek springtime for 10 days and having enough water and having enough food and not having a major disease wipe out tons of them. It's not very comprehensible. But if you throw the numbers out, what you do know is you have a Greek army and probably a larger Persian army facing each other for quite some time, ready to have the battle of all battles, these alien cultures meeting head-on, not quite as alien as at Marathon, but they had never fought each other in a pitched battle like this, and the Persians' cavalry was there. This was the arm that the Greeks feared the most. This was the arm that they themselves never had a good version of in the same era. Eventually, the Greeks would get good cavalry, but not anywhere near this time period. And the Persians had good cavalry, fast cavalry, dangerous cavalry. They also had allies at the battle who were the cavalry of the steppes, the Scythian forces, the native cavalry. They're like ancient Huns or ancient Mongols, and they were much feared. And the Greeks had no answer to them, because if you don't have cavalry to counter cavalry, you sure as heck better have archery to at least keep them away. And the Greeks didn't even have a lot of this. They were very afraid of the Persian cavalry. And a lot of the 
ancient authors made a big deal about the Persians' main weapon, which is the bow. And they said that the Battle of Plataea specifically, and the whole war in general, was a battle between the spear and the bow. But that's extremely simplistic. And Hans Delbruck, of who I'm a great fan normally, because he's so logical, completely misunderstood the bow side of the argument too. He made it sound as though his view of the way the Persians fought as archers, which everyone knows they did, but were as marksmen, skirmishers, archers who all ran around in swarms of open order men who took marksman type aim at the enemy and then when the enemy charged them, ran away. That's not how the Persians fought. They fought more like the English fought at Agincourt with the longbows. Now the Persians didn't have longbows, but they massed their archers in close formation. The Persians formed spear blocks of men. This is something we've only learned about in the past 20 or 30 years as well. And interpretations can change. 20 or 30 years from now, this may sound like an antique version of how the Persians fought, but to the best of our knowledge, what they did was set up a front row of men who had big plank shields, taller than a man, and behind them, several rows of archers who fired over the heads of the men with the plank shields. This makes sense, too, if you consider that the Persians were really an inheritor of, well, much more than military things, but military things as well from the earlier empires in their region, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. To have a mixture of bow and spear-armed troops is a very Assyrian way to organize your forces. It gives you flexibility. If you need hand-to-hand -hand combat, you have your men with shields and spears. If you've got an enemy that will not come to grips with you, you have archers in the same formation able to fire. The Persians seem to have taken the old Assyrian style of organizing the infantry and maximize the firepower. Get a front row of guys who shield everybody else and then get 12 or 15 rows of archers instead of having you know, equal numbers of archers and spearmen, which is what we think the Assyrians did. So the Persian spear blocks of men would line up against the Greeks, probably with the cavalry on the flanks, and would seek to shoot from behind these barricades of shields until the Greeks were worn down. Now, the Greeks had answers to this. They sought to close with the Persians before the Persians could get off too many volleys of arrows. And in addition, a Greek hoplite behind his shield from the front is not a very good target for an archer and not to burst any myths, but might not have been a very good target even for people armed with the English longbow. A heavily armed, armored, and shielded infantryman, like a hoplite, is not a great target for an archer. And the Battle of Plataea, which ended up starting after a nighttime maneuver by the Greek line, they were going to redress their ranks, move around a little bit, change their formation up a tad overnight, ended up getting screwed up, which happens a lot during night maneuvers. And when the Persians woke up in the morning to find out that the, that the Greek lines were messed up, they decided to take advantage of what looked like a godsend after 10 days of sitting there staring at each other and exploit the problem and the chaos and the mistake on the other side. That's how the battle broke out. What ended up happening was the, Greek, the, the Persian cavalry did not play the role that they should have in the battle. The cavalry was not what you would consider to be shock cavalry in the modern sense of the world. Where they didn't ride their opponents down like knights would 
in medieval times. But if they saw a flank or a rear open, they were dangerous. And the Greeks were terribly afraid of having their flanks turned. They worried most about the cavalry, but the cavalry ended up not being a big deal. As a matter of fact, the point where the battle turned ended up being where Greek hoplites were able to kill the Persian general, Mardonius, when he was leading some cavalry. So the hoplites managed to, one way or another, avoid the terrible occurrence of being flanked by cavalry, killed the Persian commander, and while this was going on, the Spartans were ripping apart Persian archer blocks who were unable to compete with the hoplites once the hoplites closed the gap between the two forces, the two sides. And what would happen, according to Herodotus, is the hoplites would come in and start tangling with the front rank of people who had those big plank shields and a shorter spear than the hoplites. And once the Spartans were able to pull down the plank shield and kill the man in front, the Persians from that whole row, whether it be 12 or 15 deep, would run out with big swords and no shields and little armor and try to tangle with the hoplites and were getting ripped apart. The Persian army disintegrated. The battle was a complete Greek victory. And if you believe the Greek sources, out of 300,000 Persians, only 45,000 got away from the battle. And they themselves were mostly massacred in a Greek ambush a little later on before they got back to Asia Minor. The world had changed. The West, as we know it today, was saved. Now, the world did not see the ramifications of this stupefying change of events right away. The Persian Empire did not fall because of this battle. The weakening that resulted from these losses, Xerxes would eventually be assassinated in a palace coup, which might have had something to do with his weakening because he could not handle this problem on their western border with this small alien people of no consequence, as the Persians saw it. But when Alexander destroyed the Persian Empire, 150 years later. It is because of the weakening of that empire that happened as a result of trying to chastise these Greeks who had the audacity to send some material aid to their cousins in Ionia and involve themselves in the affairs of kings. Kings of Persia who traced their cultural lineage all the way to ancient Sumeria. They were, if, if, if old Europe is the old world, these people were the old, old world. And the reverses that they suffered at Thermopylae and at Artemisium and at Salamis and Plataea was the beginning of the end for the old, old world. 